pastor and author A.W. Tozer once wrote, Jesus Christ knows the worst about you. Nonetheless, he is the one who loves you most. You see, for all of our striving and longing and lifelong efforts to be accepted and loved by others, God loves us without any of that. He loves us not because of what we can do for him, but simply because we are his creation. And because we are the object of his love, we are the recipients of profound blessings that we do not deserve and cannot earn. Every day that we wake up, every beating of our hearts, every breath in our lungs is a blessing we do not deserve and cannot earn. Every sunrise, every starlit night, every moment of time we've been given to live on this earth is a blessing we do not deserve and cannot earn. And of course, uh, of course, his salvation is a free gift that we do not deserve and cannot earn. And yet for those who believe, we get to enjoy that gift, that blessing for all of eternity, which was his plan for you and me before he created the world and everyone in it. It is, it is staggering, really, when you consider the sheer magnitude of his plan for all of creation and then understand the fact that your part in that plan is crucial to others fulfilling their part in that plan for all of creation as well. I mean, the weight the responsibility that we have as Christians to share what we've been freely given is nothing short of breathtaking. And look, it starts by living a life that blesses other people. Because, of course, we have to share uh, the gospel with them, right? That's, that's the greatest blessing of all. But listen, how we deliver that gospel to this world as those who represent Christ in this world that is what validates the message in the eyes of others to begin with. It's the, uh, the difference between them actually wanting what we have or paying us no attention whatsoever. Because the manner in which we live and interact with this world on a daily basis, look, that is what speaks volumes to those watching. Because how we live our lives, that is tangible, observable evidence to the world that what we say we believe is actually true when they see it being lived out in your life and in my life. Which means all of those blessings that God puts in your life, those aren't just meant for you to enjoy. Right? The time He gives you, the, the life He's blessed you with, your ability to express love and bestow blessings, all of that is meant for you to share with other people. Why? So they can know the love of God as you have come to know the love of God. You understand? That is how God distributes his message of love to the rest of the world, through you being a blessing to others. And so look, if you're not sharing what he's blessed you with, I mean, uh, given what's at stake eternally, then you really have to ask yourself, why? Right? What? Why in the world? What? What excuse can we come up with? What 
possible justification can we muster up for not sharing what God has freely given us with other people? Is it because you don't have, maybe you don't have all the resources other people have, uh, or because you, you weren't born into, I don't know, as much privilege as others, or maybe because of how your life has turned out. You haven't been treated fairly. Maybe you've been mistreated or underappreciated or not loved by others as you should have been. I don't know. Maybe it's because you don't think you have any influence or you're not qualified to share anything with anyone else. I don't know. Can we really justify? Can we come up with one single solid reason why we cannot or should not be sharing the blessings of God in our lives with others? I mean, maybe it's simply because you don't believe you have any of God's blessings in your life to share. Like somehow uh, you've been overlooked by God. Well, listen, last week we began studying the book of Ruth together. And one of the most glaringly obvious aspects of Ruth's life in that first chapter of her story is the fact that everything in her life, her background, her upbringing, her circumstances, the major events in her life, her lack of resources, her relationships, all of it, it all seemed to be squarely stacked against her. And we looked at all of that in detail last week, so we're not going to go back through all of it again today. But I will say, if you missed that sermon, and if you care at all about this story, you should go back and listen to it, because there's a lot of backstory there that will help you understand the rest of Ruth's story much better, and specifically uh, this second chapter where we begin to see that everything that was happening to Ruth, even the, uh, even the suffering, was not only a part of God's sovereign plan for her life, but it also leads to profound blessings in her life, which begin here in chapter 2 and continue throughout the book to its culmination uh, in the final chapter. The point being, God's plan for Ruth's life, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all of it was meant for her to learn how to be a blessing to others in order to point them to Christ, which is precisely his plan for your life as well. You see, Ruth was born to be a blessing, and so are you. Right? The Apostle Paul wrote, bless those who persecute you. What, Paul? <laughs> Say that again. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, if your enemy is hungry, if your enemy <laughs> is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's the only part I like. It's hard. 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 14 through 21. In other words, no matter what happens to you, even the hard stuff, listen, even the people responsible for that hard stuff happening to you, you bless them. Bless them with the blessings that you've been given, for that is God's plan for your life. We have no better example of that in all of Scripture than in the life of Ruth, who lives in a manner that is not only a blessing to others, but it causes those who are being blessed by her to become a blessing as well. You'll see it. It's not just that Ruth was a blessing, but the way she chose to live her life influenced those around her to become blessings themselves, as we'll see today as we continue this sermon series, working our way through the story. So let's pick it back up where we left off last week and see what living a life of blessing really looks like, even when it seems you've nothing to give. Ruth chapter 2, we'll begin by reading the first seven verses. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. I just want to pause here and say, those two verses aren't related in the sense that Ruth is not referring to Boaz. Okay, verse one is simply a commentary about the fact that Naomi has a relative named Boaz, but he hasn't been introduced to the story yet. So in verse two, Ruth is simply saying, uh, let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose height, uh, sight I shall find favor, meaning whoever will allow me to go glean in their field, let me go. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, which she doesn't know yet, who was the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Uh, so the beginning of this chapter is really a glimpse into the life of the poorest people in ancient Palestine. Since widows, foreigners, and orphans typically had no way to make a living for themselves in that society, the Mosaic law provided a means by which they could at least feed themselves. And so it was stipulated in Leviticus 19.9 and 23.22 that when harvest time came, the owner of a field was forbidden to reap his crops to the very border to the very edges of the field. He wasn't allowed to go over there and reap his own crop. Uh, he was also prohibited from going back and harvesting a sheaf that might have been missed after the first pass. So whatever you missed had to stay. It's stipulated in Deuteronomy 24, 19. And there were similar provisions set forth in the law concerning the grape harvest and the olive harvest as well. And the reason is so that the widow's and orphans and foreigners could legally go through the fields, actually without asking permission, and the orchards that belonged to the owners, the others, and they were able to glean to pick up whatever was left over or missed from the initial harvest in order to provide food for the most poor and needy among them. And so it was a system where the poor, listen, they still had to work for their food, right? If they were able, and in that way, 
this law provided for those who otherwise could not provide for themselves. And so built right into God's law from the very beginning was the commandment for God's people to be a blessing to others. Okay, being a blessing was and is and always has been a part of God's design for his people. And so Ruth goes out to glean in the fields during the barley and wheat harvest. And in the process, she ends up in the part of the field that belongs to a man named Boaz, which we're going to come back to. But listen, Ruth was an alien in a foreign land. And as a Moabite, the traditional enemy of the Israelites, living in an Israelite society, she had no reason to expect that she would ever be accepted or welcomed by the population. In fact, she wasn't even familiar at this point with their laws or customs, which is why she thinks she has to ask permission to go glean in the fields, which actually she doesn't. Furthermore, up to this point in the story, her own mother-in-law, Naomi, as we discussed Last week, the only family Ruth has anywhere near her, Naomi doesn't even want Ruth around at this point. So given her current circumstances and and all she's been through so far, I dare say most of us would be thinking of ways at this point we could go and fend for ourselves and maybe even make a way to get back to our own home and our own people. But Ruth isn't just thinking of herself. As we'll see as the story unfolds, her desire is actually to honor and bless others around her more than it is to take care of herself. Most of all, Naomi. And so instead of simply going out into the fields, as was Ruth's legal right as both the widow and foreigner to get some food for herself, instead she asked permission first from Naomi and then from the field owners or the workers there to go into the field and glean for both her and Naomi. And so after all of this hardship, after all of this loss and hopelessness and rejection without any expectation of being treated kindly or being accepted by the local townsfolk and without the prompting of Naomi, Ruth is determined to help others, especially those who don't want her around. And unbeknownst to her, in the process, she teaches us how to be a blessing out of your need. Because look, if, if the only time we ever blessed other people was after all of our own needs were already met, right? then when would we ever be a blessing to other people? For some of us, probably never. right? I, I think most of us keep going to work every day because we keep getting these pesky things in the mail called bills that we have to pay. Right? And when we struggle to create margin in our busy schedules. And when we do manage to eke out a little time for ourselves, what do we do? We want to do something for ourselves, right? The fact is, there will always be need in our lives. Don't let that stop you from being a blessing to others. You understand, one doesn't preclude the other. Having needs in your own life doesn't preclude you from meeting needs in other people's lives at the same time. Okay, you're, you're not, uh, listen, you're not being prudent by refusing to bless someone else when you have a need in your own life. You're actually being disobedient to God's word. There was, there was no one more needy in this whole story than Ruth. And yet the first thing she does as soon as they get to Bethlehem is to start meeting the needs of other people, not just herself, okay? Uh, Don't hide behind your own need. 
to keep from meeting the needs of others. As a child of God, you've been called to be a blessing even out of your own need. And anything less than that is actually disobedience. Ruth didn't have any food to give to Naomi, but she figured out where to get it and went about getting it straight away to be a blessing to her mother-in-law. Of course, she could have told, she could have told Naomi, you know, uh, I know there's food out there to be gleaned, but I just need to pray about it first. Now, that would have been ridiculous to stay home and pray and miss the opportunity to be a blessing and meet a need and provide for someone else while other people are out there gleaning in the fields. And yet that is exactly what we do all the time. Like somehow we're being spiritual. No, that's being selfish. Okay, there's nothing more spiritual that Ruth could have done in that moment than to get up off the couch and go out into those fields amongst the people who considered her to be their enemy to glean food for a woman who did not want her to come to Bethlehem to begin with, all the while working harder than anyone else out there as the man in charge of the reapers makes it a point to say she's continued from early morning until now except for a short rest, also that she could be a blessing to us others okay that was an infinitely more spiritual way for Ruth to spend her time than staying at home and praying about whether or not she should do the right thing okay listen if every time you have an opportunity to bless someone else you don't because you have needs in your own life or you feel like you have to pray about that first then I'm sorry but you're not being prudent or spiritual you're being disobedient and selfish. By the way, uh, God doesn't reward or make special concessions for our disobedience or selfishness. If His Word commands us to do something, you can pray about that all you want to. Your prayers are not going to change His Word. Neither will your need. Doing what His Word commands us to do is always the right thing to do. And listen, this... uh, This next bit is probably going to step on some people's toes. So please just remember how much your pastor loves you. Because in addition to claiming the needs of prudence and spirituality as excuses for withholding blessings from others, there's a third excuse that we wield today with great confidence in the American church as to why we don't always bless others as we should. And that's our own families the needs of our biological families at home. And listen, hear me. I wholeheartedly agree that we're supposed to take care of our own families. Yes, we are. If you have a wife or a husband, maybe young kids or even aging parents, listen, without a doubt, we're supposed to take care of our own families. But I will tell you that in the modern church, especially in the evangelical church movement in America, we have come dangerously close to making an idol out of our families. We put our kids' feelings and activities and their desires above every other need, including the needs in the body of Christ. We put vacation time away with our family above almost everything else. Right? Family time is the most important time for most Christians today. We treat our family at home as sacred and our family at church as secondary. 
In fact, if I heard it once growing up in church, I've heard it a hundred times. Your family is your first ministry. Great, except that's not what the Bible actually says. In fact, Luke, Luke 14, 26, Jesus said that anyone who does not love him more than his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even his own life cannot be my disciple. Matthew 12, 48 and 49, Jesus is teaching the crowds of people and his mothers and his brothers show up outside, his mom and his brothers. They actually show up there and they're asking to speak to him. He replies to the man who tells him, he says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Okay, the hard truth is Jesus put his church family before his biological family. Yet a recent Barna study says that most Americans are likely to point to their biological family as making up a significant part of their personal identity with country being second and God being third. And Christians are no exception where biological family has usurped God and his family as the primary identity marker for most churchgoers. Even the most committed Christians and evangelical American churches would typically list their priorities in this order. This is how they listed them. God, my family at home, God's family, the church, third, and then others. But if you ask Jesus to make the same list, according to Scripture at least, it would look more like God and his family first, my family at home second, and then others. Pastor, New Testament professor at Talbot School of Theology, Joseph Hellerman, said it this way. Our priorities are off when family is more important than church. Jesus' focus was on the family of God, not the biological family. He went on to say the family of God is not here to serve the interests of our family. Rather, our families are here to serve the family of God. And yet, if we're being honest... We often hide behind the needs of our families at home as an excuse as to why we cannot be a blessing to the family of God like we're called to be. And again, this is where Ruth stands out in such stark contrast with most people because even when her own sister Orpah, you'll remember from chapter 1, when she ran back to their family at home, when she had the chance, Ruth ran toward the family of God. She made the family of God her number one priority, and as a result, her life became a profound blessing to those who needed it most when they needed it the most. Even though she was in great need herself, she refused to allow that need to keep her from being a blessing to other people. Martin Luther once said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Let's keep reading verses 8 through 16. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? When you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. 
And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Boaz was a wealthy a powerful and influential man in Israelite society. When verse 1 says he was a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, that phrase, a worthy man, in the ancient Hebrew is translated elsewhere as a man of wealth, a mighty man of wealth. It's also translated as a mighty man of valor, which was typically used to describe great military men. So in addition to being quite wealthy, Boaz may well have been a great warrior, uh, remember, this story takes place in the time of the judges. These were troubled times indeed for the Hebrew people who were often called upon to fight when needed. And yet, if you, if you read that verse uh, in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, it suggests that the name Boaz means in the strength of Yahweh, also suggesting a great degree of moral character and integrity in Boaz as well. So this is a wealthy powerful landowner with great integrity, great influence in the community, and possibly a fighting man as well. He had certainly earned the respect of the people and his employees, which makes it all the more compelling that as he shows up to his field, he not only takes notice of this Moabite woman, but great interest in her as well, to the point that he pours out blessings on her far beyond what any poor widow gleaning in a field let alone a foreigner from the Moabites, would ever expect from a man as wealthy and powerful and respected among his people as Boaz. And although Ruth may have been uh, physically beautiful, we actually don't know, uh, what attracts Boaz to her is that he recognizes the same godly character inside of her, which becomes abundantly clear after uh, she asks him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and mother and your native land to come to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. You see where others saw nothing more than a poor, abandoned, widowed, hopeless foreign woman. They, they didn't understand her and they had no interest in getting to know her. Boaz, at the same time, saw the hand of God at work in a powerful way in a woman who had already brought so much blessing into the lives of others. And it captivated him. And as a result, he not only speaks the first kind words Ruth has heard since leaving her family in Moab, but he backs up those words of blessing by pouring out material blessings, not on his employees, not on the Hebrew people gleaning in the field, and not on any of the other people from his own community, but on this most unlikely candidate, this young Moabite widow, the last person who could ever repay him. The last person his own people would ever say deserves such a blessing. The last person any upstanding Hebrew would ever predict a man like Boaz would bless. Yet he doesn't just give her extra food. He gives her dignity. 
He gives her honor. He gives her a place in his life. And it's, it's not just that he gives her some of all that. He gives her his very best of all of that. Come here, Ruth. In other words, come and sit with me and my workers. He honors an outsider as though she was one of his inner circle. Come and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. He treats her with the dignity no one ever had before. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she eat until she ate until she was satisfied. It's probably the first real meal she's had in years. And she had some left over when she rose to glean. Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also put some of the bundles out for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Boaz blessed this outsider as if she was a member of his own family. He did what no one would have ever expected him to. And in the process, he's teaching us how to be a blessing outside of your circle. Okay, Uh, it's one thing to bless those who bless you back, right? To bless those who you not only like, but those who like you back. It's really not all that hard to be a blessing to those we deem as worthy or deserving of our generosity based on their conformity to our personal preferences. And as a result, listen, if you look at who you bless in your life, it's often a rather small circle of people for most of us. It's the people we've decided best fit in with us. It's our circle. But look, God wants us to bless those who are not in our circle. Just as Boaz did and just as Jesus did, those who don't fit with our usual crowd, those who aren't like us, those who our circle may not even approve of all the time, those who don't like us or act like us or understand our ways any more than we understand theirs. Keep in mind, at this point, Ruth knew nothing of the Hebrew God. She didn't understand their religion or culture or customs. She had absolutely nothing to offer them other than her own kindness and a heart that was seeking after God, even if she didn't fully understand that at this point in her life. You see, Ruth may not have been the one the Hebrew people would have chosen for such a profound role in pointing people to the Messiah, which is what her life ultimately does at the end of the book. But she was the one who God chose. And that blessing that she was is what Boaz seemed to recognize in her, even though she was far outside of his usual circle of friends. And and look, we have a wealth of uh, archaeological evidence and ancient writings, most notably the Mesha Stele, which is an inscribed stone from 840 B.C., which describes not only the Moabites' worship of the pagan god Chemish, an abomination to the Israelites, but also the Moabites' great victory, a humiliating victory over Israel in battle. And remember, this story was happening during that time of tribal war. There was tremendous, tremendous racial and religious tension throughout the region. You can imagine how the Israelites must have felt about the Moabites, right? Ruth could not have been any further outside of Boaz's circle. And yet he didn't only bless this outsider, he blessed her with his very best, which is exactly what we are called to bless people with today, our very best, and not just those in our inner circle, but at times even those far outside of our circle, which is the heart of Christ, 
who himself went into the homes of tax collectors and sinners, the lowest of the low, the most marginalized, despised, rejected members of Jewish society. And he blessed them and he gave them dignity and honor. He gave them the very best that he had to give. And what happened? The leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers, the religious people who thought Jesus should be hanging out with them in their inner circle, they questioned his willingness to choose to hang out with and be a blessing to what they saw as the scourge of the earth. And so indignant, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Mark two sixteen and 17. Aren't you grateful for that? Look, Jesus didn't put us on this earth to live safe, sanitized, religiously comfortable lives. No, he put us here to get our hands dirty while blessing others no one will, to go where no one else will go, to meet with people no one else wants to meet, to have conversations no one else is willing to have. And listen, we're not just supposed to bless those who are outside of our circle. We're supposed to bless them with our very best If Jesus, listen, if Jesus, the son of the living God, could get down on his own knees and watch the filthy feet of the most undeserving, sinful, unworthy group of men who he knew hours later would all abandon him. If Jesus is willing to stoop down and wash their feet right before dying for them and for us, then what possible excuse can we proffer to justify not giving our very best to those who need it the most? And uh, look, please hear me. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, giving money to able-bodied people who refuse to work. Ruth went out and worked harder than anyone else so that she could care for Naomi and herself. Now, I'm talking about giving yourself, giving your time, your attention, your friendship, your heart, of course, your money if need be, giving it all to people outside of your circle. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. He didn't have money to give them or material gifts. So he gave them something infinitely more valuable than that and something much harder, by the way, to give. He gave them himself, his life, his friendship, his time. He gave them the very best of himself. Now, take a minute and look around this room and then ask yourself, How many people in this room right now, among these same people who come here week after week and sit in this same room with me and sing the same songs I sing and drink the same coffee and study the same scriptures together with me week after week after week after week? How many of these same people do I actually have some kind of meaningful relationship with? I bet for most of us, it's a rather small number. Now, look, I understand that you can't be best friends with everybody you meet. I get it. But listen, if when you look around this room, you see certain people and you think to yourself, you know what? That's probably not someone I would hang out with or invite to lunch or over to my house 
or out for coffee. That's probably not someone I would naturally gravitate toward to ask them about their day or how their life is going because honestly, they're just not in my circle. Do you understand? That is the very attitude among his people that Jesus hates. In fact, that is the attitude he spent his entire ministry on earth trying to destroy by showing his followers what real love looks like, by blessing people outside of his circle, or at least what the religious people thought should have been Jesus' circle. And it's exactly why he said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you give a lot in the offering. No. That you show up to church every Sunday. No. That you have a nice, good moral compass. No. That you vote for the right politician. No. No, he said, this is how people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. It's a hard and fast truth in the kingdom of God that every one of us must accept. The fact that if you're a follower of Christ, then your circle, whether you want it to be or not, your circle is the church. All of it, not just the parts you prefer, but every single member of it. And your job, your calling is to bring others outside of this circle in to your circle, which starts by being a blessing to those you would naturally have nothing to do with. How? How do I do that? By investing your time and your interest and your friendship and your heart, your life into relationships with people outside of this circle. Which, by the way, that won't make any sense to the world outside of the church that you're doing that. It also won't make any sense to the religious people inside of the church, which just means you're doing it right, because that's exactly how it was for Jesus. Okay, former Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia once said, have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ and have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 17 to the end of the chapter. So she gleaned in the field until evening and then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So Ruth processes the barley she had gleaned for the day, and she comes home to Naomi with about an ephah of grain. That's about five and a half gallons or 30 pounds of of grain, enough for these two women to live on for a few weeks, which also happens to be a huge amount of grain for one person to glean in a day. And it 
it really underscores, number one, Boaz's generosity, but number two, Ruth's worth work ethic. She worked harder than anybody. And of course, the first thing Naomi wants to know is, where in the world did you go to come up with all this grain? And so Ruth says, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz, which gets Naomi's attention. Because Boaz was not only a respected, influential Israelite landowner in the community, but he was also a close relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. As she explains, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers or kinsmen. It's the ancient Hebrew word ga'al, which is to say he's much more than just a family relation. He was one of the family representatives, a, a chieftain in the family of sorts. And in ancient societies, including Hebrew society, there were what was called leveret laws, more specifically to this passage, leveret marriage laws. And under those leveret laws, if a woman's husband died before she could bear children by him, then it was the duty, the requirement of the dead man's brother or one of the kinsmen redeemers, a close relative, to bear children by her in order to continue the dead brother's line, which is stipulated in the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, effectively redeeming the family line that would otherwise be lost by a childless widow. And so immediately... Once Naomi finds out that Ruth made a connection with Boaz, a close relative of Elimelech, one of their kinsmen, Naomi's gears start turning, right? Because she knows this new relationship could turn out to be much more than just a seasonal blessing for her and her daughter-in-law at the barley harvest. And in her excitement, Naomi does something that may seem to us to simply be nothing more than a passing statement. Uh, but it was actually of tremendous significance as she pronounces a blessing over Boaz. May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Okay, in ancient Hebrew culture, what Naomi does here was the highest honor you could bestow on another human being. She pronounces a blessing over Boaz for fulfilling one of the highest ideals among God's covenant people, and it's significant not only for Boaz, but for Naomi as well, because in the very recent past, back in chapter 1, she was openly lamenting her belief that the Lord had gone out against her and had testified against her and had brought calamity upon her because her circumstances were so bad. But here, just a few days later, when her circumstances change dramatically, here she is blessing Boaz and honoring God whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. In other words, in that profound moment of what was truly revelation for Naomi, we find her learning how to be a blessing out of honor to God. In other words, our circumstances are going to constantly change. Right? They always do for everyone, but God's goodness never changes, even when our circumstances are anything but good. And look, Naomi's far from out of the woods yet, right? If we're being honest, they have food for a few weeks, which is great, but the harvest isn't going to last forever. And if Ruth falls out of favor with Boaz, they could be right back where they were in no time. But Naomi's beginning to realize, as we'll see as the story continues to unfold over the next two chapters, she's beginning to realize that you can be a blessing to others even when your life isn't going as you'd like it to, because God is good even when your circumstances are not. Right? If, 
if Naomi had had her way and Ruth went back home to her family, we would be reading a very different story right now. But because Naomi did not get what she wanted, you with me? Because Naomi did not get what she wanted, her life is heading in a direction she never could have imagined for herself. Blessings beyond her wildest dreams. Okay? We have to get this. Sometimes the very best thing that could ever happen to you in your life is for you to not get what you want. Why? Because God has something far better for you. And so the right response to him, even when you're not getting what you want, is to honor him by being a blessing to others, even when you don't feel blessed yourself. That's why we bless others to begin with. It's not because of how our lives happen to be going in any given point in time. That, no, that constantly changes. We bless others in order to honor God all the time because he never changes. He's good all the time. Which takes us right back to the beginning of this message. The manner in which we live and interact with this world on a daily basis has to be based on who God is, not on how our lives happen to be going at any given point in time. Because first of all, that's when you begin to recognize just how blessed you are. Even when life isn't going how you want it to, even in times of great personal need, when you focus on the goodness of who God is and the fact that he created a plan for this world before he created the world itself and a profound part of that plan is you. Which means although the journey getting there may not always look like you wish it did, where you're going to end up is infinitely better than anything you could ever create for yourself, even if you always got everything you ever wanted. Because God's plan for your life is always better than the one you envisioned for yourself. Every single time. Just as we see in this story, and when you... When you truly begin to trust and believe that and therefore bless others out of honor to him and who he is rather than out of, you know, your own circumstances on any given day, that is what speaks volumes to those watching from outside your circle. Because how you live your life is tangible evidence to the world that what you say you believe is actually true when they see it being lived out in your life every single day as you pour out blessings on other people. Look, regardless of your own circumstances. And you understand that is exactly how God distributes his message of love to the rest of the world. Not through you always being successful in front of others, but through you always being a blessing to others. Let's pray.